You are listening to Australia's tax news podcast, Tax Talks, the podcast for Australian tax professionals. Welcome to episode 41 of Tax Talks. This is Heide Robson. Bank and data feeds are essential to really harvest the power of cloud-based software. But do we know how these feeds actually work and come about? Kevin Bungert is the CEO of Class, and Tom Sargent is the Feeds Operations Manager at Class, and so perfect to ask for more details. My first question to Tom is, whether at the start, when Class approached the banks about a bank feed, whether back then the banks even knew what a bank feed is. Here's Tom. So historically, no, there wasn't a lot of buy-in from the banks. So class would have had to go hunting for those feeds and really requesting them from the banks. And of course, when the feeds did occur, we basically needed to accept what we got. So what they could send, we were happy to get. And having said that, there were some institutions that were far advanced than others. And I think, you know, like, for example, Macquarie led the way a lot with bank feeds and certainly with the Cash Management Trust back in those days. They had established data feeds quite early on in the piece. And that was seen internally at Macquarie as quite a high and significant win for the product to have those data feeds. They recognised the value of wealth relationships, accountants, intermediaries like advisors and stockbrokers. And so that was why you saw that rise in that cash product so rapidly and, and it grew so well. And of course, then that obviously heightened the awareness of the other banks. These feeds must be something that we need to be doing and, and they're pretty important. And so the impact of that was that there, the awareness changed how important that information sharing was. And, and so now we're actually seeing banks come to class. It's, it's changed and it's definitely changed because of the importance of the sharing of that data. And, of course, it's client-driven. Clients, of course, need to be able to share their data with their intermediaries who are running their day-to-day affairs. And so accountants and, and advisors and stockbrokers are so important now in the self-managed industry so and segment so that that's changed and the importance of sharing that data has changed as, as a result. So have Ubank and ING contacted you yet? Because I think they are two of those who haven't got Yeah, there's a few that we're still chasing. You know, they are two of them. So Ubank, yes, we have you know actively pursued. And they still don't have a data feed, but we're still talking with them. ING. And look, I think it comes back to the, their legacy systems, really, and whether they have the ability to even have that technology available to produce data feeds. And, and generally, that is what... Uh, held banks back in the past as well, that they were sitting on very old legacy systems and it wasn't easy for them to get the data out and it wasn't easy for them to develop data feeds and create files that they could then securely send externally. And, of course, it was also that, I guess, what would you call it? It's almost that they were a bit scared of what they were and a bit scared of sharing that data. And some banks, some of the big four, for example, they had this strong notion that they own that data. They, they weren't going to share it. They own it. It's their data. And once again, that has changed over time to this, this, this really important factor that at the end of the day, the client owns the data or they should own the data. It's their data. It's their information. And therefore, they should have the ability to choose to share that with who they want to share it with with appropriate authority and security in place. And so, you know, you've still got those few, though, that you talk about, so the U-Banks and the ING. But we do get ING advisor data. Yes. You know, so, so we can get it from for their wealth, their wealth business, but we can't get it for their direct business, which is interesting. And once again, I think that goes back to their legacy, where, where that data is stored, what the system is like. Similar for Sun, Suncorp. Right? So Suncorp's probably the biggest of the banks that we don't get data feeds for, that we've actively pursued. You know, and we will, no, really, I didn't know that. Yeah, we'll continue to, to go after them. Uh, we really would like to integrate with them. And, of course, we've got clients and customers who, who want that data. So, yeah, so, so they're probably the three names that, that spring to mind that we still haven't got bank data for. Yeah. And I can imagine the banks probably couldn't see at the start what was in it for them. Um, you know, because giving these data feeds would have cost money, developer time, etc., and they couldn't see how it would hit to benefit really, their bottom It's a really important point, and it's, it's an interesting one, particularly for the big four, I think, because they're so retail-focused, not wealth-focused. And so 
their client base proportionately was much larger in the retail direct client area than it was in the wealth advisory. Whereas for someone like a Macquarie, who you look at their mix, their mix was roughly, you know, 70-30, 70% wealth versus 30% direct client. And so the major portion of their business was intermediary driven. And that's why they were able to really drive through this, this importance of data fees and integration. And they saw as opposed to the big four, for example, they saw the importance of making sure that data was available so that their their clients, their wealth customers who were advisors and stockbrokers were happy and could manage the affairs of their clients on their desktop software of choice. They didn't want to not have that information within their X plans and their class supers, for example, that they could work with. And big stockbrokers needed that information around their cash and bank account information so that they could manage the trading affairs of their clients in a timely fashion and have that information to hand. Mm. And so you're right, it is an important thing. They probably, the, the big four, for example, be, it was probably driven off their client base more than anything else, that they didn't see the need or importance for it as much as a wealth Bad. You mentioned stockbrokers mm. before. I'm thinking of Shaw and Partners. You yeah, know, yeah, Morgan Stanley. Yeah. Your open markets, Bill Potters, uh, those sort of guys. Yeah. yeah. Do you find they are less open to data feeds? I know we are now moving to data feeds instead of bank feeds. But when I look at my experience regarding feeds, the bank feeds are relatively easy to get the processes are well set up what is really hard is getting the data feeds from the likes of Shaw and partners for example the attitude there why do you need a data feed we give you a tech summary at the end of the year that tells you what capital gains were etc why do you need a data feed that breaks it down the it's not as open yet to to the whole integration yeah, not necessarily i think that may have been in the past but Certainly now I think they're much more open to providing data, certainly on transactional data and holding data. And certainly for class, that is exactly how we would prefer to deal with the brokers with directly, so a direct feed from the institution rather than try and get it from any other source. So, And that's what we do, and we work with the brokers. And I think now we're finding that the brokers are much more open and more willing to provide data. And once again, it's client-driven. And certainly in the self-managed super fund area, That because they're choosing to use a broker now rather than a platform, you know, they'll, they'll go and they'll establish a bank account and a broker or a share trading account. And because of that, that drive and that growth, I think the clients are driving the brokers to understand how important it is for other intermediaries in the financial industry, such as advisors and accountants, to be having that data as well or be able to get access to that data as well in their software. And so I think, yeah, maybe in the past it might have been a bit more difficult, but certainly now. Now we're finding that brokers are easier to deal with and, and much more willing and, in fact, approaching class as well, you know, like where they haven't got a feed. We don't necessarily have to go and chase them for that. They, they are now more open to that. Taking a step back, where did you come from? Because in the press notice, it said that you already had quite an extensive experience with data and bank feeds. So I've jumped the fence. I was on the other side. I was with Macquarie Bank. I joined Macquarie in 1990. I had 26 years with them. So quite a long stint at Macquarie. And during that time, I obviously grew quite familiar with and, and had a lot of knowledge and, and experience on the cash and wrap platform there. Uh, I worked a lot on the project management and the development of those, those products. My last eight years or so at Macquarie were actually managing, I was the head of connectivity, which was managing all of the data feeds to external provide out to external software. So the external software was my they were my customers, they were my clients. And it gave me a really good insight into that industry and of course And I was very lucky. Uh, the backing within Macquarie for data feeds was was really important, extensive, and so it was a lot of support. And what that enabled me to do was to develop that as a product, if you like, a data feed or connectivity product from Macquarie out to providers. And so we grew that number of external software uh, receivers, if you like, of data quite extensively over the eight years or so that I was managing it. And Well, as I said earlier, we were quite proud of the fact that we were sort of leading the way in terms of the format, the schema, and the way that we were transmitting. We were obviously one of the first that provided what was a web service. It was more or less an API, but a web service delivery of data feeds or data out. 
in files for a number of products, and uh, we were using XML format very early on, and you know, like so, and daily and daily information that was quite easy to get. And we we opened it up, and we didn't charge for it. It was free, and we always had the view that, as I said earlier, that the client owned the data, and we didn't really have a right to charge for that again. So we never on-sold the data, and we made a point of telling our external software receivers, if you like, that within the contract that they weren't able to on-sell it either. We made a point of that because we didn't want that to become a commercial thing. We wanted it to be freely available. So, yeah, so 26 years at Macquarie, which gave me quite an extensive view on the world, enabled me to, to get a really good handle. And Class, of course, were uh, uh, one of my larger clients. So I think that was the second largest user at that point of data out of Macquarie uh, and receiver. So particularly for the, the cash management account and the bank account, and then after that, the wrap. And did you come from a commercial background or from an IT background and then grew into the connectivity? No, always in the business, uh, although, of course, because of what I was working on and what I was doing at Macquarie, you I picked quite up quite a, an extensive knowledge with IT mm. and was able to obviously deal very closely. And because essentially data feeds is an IT product, you build up quite a, an extensive knowledge of, of how that world works and how it operates. Does somebody pay for the data feeds? Do you pay the banks for the data feed or do the banks pay you for the right to give a data feed? Is, is there any commercial relationship? Look, there is generally a fee associated with a data fee. Uh, it's negotiated individually with institutions. Naturally, you know, we, we can talk about that now, but we do have fee arrangements in place with a number of banks that um, do charge for their data. As I said, it's, it's negotiated on a case-by-case basis. Having said that, we're hoping and we're thinking that with open banking and the NPP initiatives that there might be a trend or there may be a trend towards more freely available data. Obviously, that sharing, as I was talking about earlier with clients, you know, owning the data and wanting to share their, their data, maybe with open banking and the NPP, there might be a trend towards more freely available data. And obviously, that will then heighten some, some other areas around security and appropriate authorizations for sharing. But, uh, yeah, that's, that's what we're hoping. So at the moment, Zero, Class, BGN, MYOB would all be paying for bank feeds. That may be the case, but obviously I can't really yes. say what they're doing internally. It's on a case-by-case basis, and, and it'd be up to the institution that's actually you know, providing that data as to how they want to provide it and what they would expect in return. MPP initiative. N, N, oh, N, 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 the new payments platform. Oh, I see. Sorry, MPP, yeah. NPP, yes. Yeah. Okay, good. That's rolling out already now, isn't it? It basically means that bank transactions no longer wait one or two days before they hit the recipient's account, but that they will be instantaneous. Yeah, more or less. So it's it's really also a new way to transact. So it's a it's a well, futuristic, if you like, but um, you'll be able to transact with not just having bank accounts to transfer money, but other information about clients as well. So it's quite open in real time, as you say. So the rollout, uh, though, that you alluded to will be phased, I think. So there will be early adopters and then there'll be, there'll be second adopters and third adopters. So it will take quite some time before all of the financial institutions are on board with NPP. And I guess... If you're banking or if you're using an institution that's not on NPP, then, you know, you won't be able to make full effect or use of it until you, your bank does get on it. So, so BPay has rolled out there yeah. the first round of that. And This is Kevin, Kevin Bungard, the CEO of Class. BPay has rolled out there yeah. the first round of that and it'll get rolled out broad, more broadly over time. Mm. The new payments platform allows a number of different things. Yeah. One is more frequent. Uh, more immediate payment. One is different mechanisms of identifying the account that you're paying to. But the exciting thing from from our perspective is that it also has a richer set of metadata that comes Mm. with the payment, which means that from a cash matching point of view, you get more information. I think everybody's fairly familiar that you only get a very small number of characters, things like 18 characters or something, on a standard payment. And so encoding on that for, I know in the early days of Superstream when they were trying to encode, you know, what a payment was and trying to figure out how to encode that into the narrative on a bank statement was very, very difficult. And that's why Superstream ended up just having a completely separate payload of the information related to the thing rather than 
just relying on the cache narrative that you needed to send that metadata through a, a different channel. And so the new payment platform also improves that, the ability to actually know what that payment was, who it was from, why you received it. Mm. There's a lot richer set of data around that, which makes it, and that's not just for uh, what we're doing in the uh, self and super fund and investment space, but also just generally in terms of small business owners and so forth, and having a clearer view of what a payment is. And correct me if I'm wrong, Kevin, but my understanding also is that you can accompany the payment with documentation or files, you know, so you can have supporting information at like a file or a document going with that payment. So it actually supports it, yeah. and that's what you know that even well, more rich document. Electronic remittance advice, essentially, yeah. so that um, and and that's essentially what Superstream does. But obviously, mm. Superstream had to build their own mechanism for that. This is just a general purpose mm. mechanism for that. And is the NPP initiative is that a market driven initiative or is that a regulator driven initiative? So I think it's based off of a government initiative, and then the industry. Uh, has got together. There is an, a body that is running the MPP, and uh, but they're working with industry, so it's it's made up of representatives from industry. But it was a, 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 a sort of a, it started by a, by a government initiative. I see. So the government basically said this is what it needs to look like, and then the uh, the market got together, established so it's a body. A, that a combination. Something at this scale is always going to require a level of government involvement because of the regulatory background. You're going to see the same thing with open banking. So again, it's triggered by the government in, in terms of uh, saying, here's an initiative, we need to do this. You see similar things in terms of privacy. And so what you end up with is industry, the regulator working together where legislation is required, then obviously that needs to be put in place to make sure that there is the appropriate legislative framework for what you're doing. But then the industry needs to uh, typically come on board in terms of providing the technical expertise and the framework and actually building that out and making it work. And you will need the industry to work as a group to make that kind of all come together. But it'll be a combination, something like this of this scale of, of both the new payments platform and open banking require involvement across the board. Sorry, I probably start boring you now. But open banking, yes. what is that about? Uh, so open banking is really um, an initiative to rec uh, formalise that recognition of your right to your data, to basically say that institutions hold a lot of information that the, in, in this case, the investors have basically, or the institutions have collected about an investor and about your transactions. And there have been situations where you've had fintechs who've wanted access to data, particularly things like loan information and things like that, and they haven't been able to get it. The Institutions have basically said, "Look, we we don't really want to make that data available," and to some, in some cases, well founded because, as we've just discussed before, there are concerns about, "Well, hang on, who's getting the data and what are they doing with it?" So the institutions do have a, a responsibility, but on the other hand, people want that data if they choose the, to go with a startup and they want them to have access to that data, then they should be able to get access to that data. And so, you again, it's a good example of where. How do you resolve that where you have to have the government step in and say, guys, here's, here's the baseline, here's what you have to do, here's what you have to protect, and here's what you do have to do in terms of being open and letting people have access to data. So, you know, there's a, a guidelines there in terms of how that works and building a framework, a legal framework around that to say, when should data be shared, when should, what sort of hurdles do you need to meet in order to get access to the data, how do we do it in a way that we respect privacy and security and all the important aspects of, of technology around making sure that right people get access to the right data, but in a, in a controlled way. And this legal framework regarding open banking has already been... No, so that's a, open banking is still a relatively new initiative. It is... So the government is working on it or the industry yep, is working yep. on it? Again, a combination of the two. So it's a government initiative, but it's engaging with industry going, okay, guys, how are we going to do this? Because the government can't just come in and lay down the rules and tell industry what to do because that tends to end, end badly. Uh, it's better if the government says, guys, here's what we want to try and achieve. Now let's all get together and figure out how we actually deliver on that. Superstream was a government initiative in terms of making sure that the data around, um, I mean, it's a number of different things, but obviously contributions is the, is the big one that relates to self-managed super funds. It's also used for rollovers, so it's a, it's, it's the, 
again, it's the definition and the protocol around which you exchange that information. But interestingly enough, it doesn't go to the ATO. Single-touch payroll, which is another another initiative we should probably have yes. sort of touched on as well. Single-touch payroll does involve reporting to the ATO, and that's where going forward the government with the ATO will get information about super contributions. The SuperStream framework is actually an industry group. So it's a gateway operators group and information is exchanged between the various gateways and the various providers, but the, the government's actually not in that loop, so they don't get oh, okay. access to the data, which um, originally they were going to be involved in that and actually run the, the sort of central hub for that, but the the eventual model doesn't actually have the ATO involved at all, so the information actually just flows between the payroll providers and the uh, superannuation providers with some gateways in between. give the bank technical specifications or does the bank just say this is how we give you the data and then you have to adjust to it? It's a bit like that. It's a bit like the bank will tell us how they're going to send it and generally that might vary bank by bank or institution and we would then obviously, you know, we, we'd need to take the take it in the way that we're given it and so we've we've grown pretty flexible in that sense and, and developed a lot of capability around really building to their specifications and being able to receive it in. There is sort of a quasi-industry standard which is the EPI standard but definitely not used by all banks and a lot of providers data fee providers do develop to the EPI standard and where they come to us early on or approach us and say look we'd really like to develop a feed can you help us with what we need to do in terms of specifications and that we will maybe you know send them down the road of the EPI and we can provide the specification for them to have a look at if they don't have anything else in mind or they don't already have a, a set of standards that they're going to build to can you tell me what the EPI the standard standard or external platform interface. Originally, look, and, and um, you know, don't quote me, but, uh, it was originally developed by IRES and it's now grown to, I think, they're up to version 4.3 of that standard. And the most current one that we receive now is 4.2. 4.3 is the newest, and we're not aware yet of anybody actively using 4.3. But, yeah, that's, it's, it's a standard. It was a, it was a standard or schema of data feeds or data written by IRES originally. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So EP, the EPI standard doesn't just apply to the bank feeds, but it also applies to the, any data anybody feeds? Can use yeah, it's quite extensive. It's quite a, a quite a complex schema with a lot of rich information and fields that can be populated and sent out in your data feed. Yeah. I suspected that it's the bank who sent the technical specifications of how they want to send the bank feed because how the authority submitted to the bank is quite different from bank to bank. You know, for one bank, you have to send the original form in. For another bank, you just upload it into class. So it's it's quite different from... That varies as well. Varies, um, yeah. Yeah, we're, we're quite strict on the authority process early on when we're developing a feed with a new provider. We get heavily involved and we want to know exactly how that authority process works. We drive it a little bit in terms of, yes, we do we do want a copy of the form if there's a form and we we have it we host it on the site and we can then obviously make it available for download and pre-filling and yes we as i say we, we get involved in that early on and, and part of our onboarding of a new feed provider is having a really good knowledge of how that authority process works you touched on the epi standard how does the bank feed arrive is it in an xml format or yeah that varies too generally it's csv file format um, delivered to our SFTP server. So it's in that sense, it's a push to us from the, the external providers or the feed providers. There are a couple that we go and pull from their SFTP server, but that's very minimal. Mostly it's a push. And, you know, um, while uh, the majority use CSV format, there is a move. The more innovative and the new newer providers are starting to adopt XML, which is which fine either way. We can work with CSV or XML. But, um, yeah, we are seeing a little bit more of that adoption of the XML format. What's the difference between a CSV and an XML? CSV st- stands for comma-separated values. Yeah, and it's essentially Excel like is, an Excel file. Yeah. Uh, yeah, so they're both Excel files. They're just 
Yeah, it's just the it's slightly yeah, different. Yeah, it's just the format of the data that's inside the file is different. So CSV versus XML format is just obviously configured differently, layered differently, and can be read differently by the server. Are the bank feeds encrypted? Oh, most certainly. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. So um, how does encryption? work how do you make sure that you can read the encryption but somebody else can't just in layman's terms it's difficult to dumb this down into layman terms without sounding a bit too technical and nerdish but essentially we use public and private key mechanisms and a range of technologies without going into specifics obviously it gives away a bit much about our ip and things like that but definitely there are technologies available and it's encrypted so it uh, it can only be read by both parties if there are private keys exchanged or public keys exchanged across the internet. I always refer to it like a handshake, a trusted handshake, where there is an exchange on both sides of something that is private and trusted that enables a handshake across a firewall or across the internet to be able to decode or unencrypt that information and read it. That's the way I sort of see it in layman's terms. So the encryption is basically like a code and you only hand over the code of how to read this data when you have the private handshake. Yeah, a trusted handshake or a trusted exchange of certificates. Yeah, I hope that makes sense. Yes, yes it does. most of the data gets pushed. How often does it get pushed? Daily. 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 But yeah. just once a day, not almost continuously That's or so. Right. Yeah, yeah. So the majority of institutions at the moment generally only push it once a day. They make those files available and they push it onto our servers and then we obviously then load that data from our feed system into class yeah, on a daily basis. And is there a common time that most of them push? Is oh, it no. before start of business or end, <laughs> no, up, end of business? Uh, end of business, yes, definitely after close of business, but they come through at various times of day onto our servers. They arrive on our servers, you know, after midnight during the early hours of the morning and we commence loading immediately. So the earliest ones might be 2am or even earlier midnight, but they can trickle in throughout the day. And so we're, we're generally dealing with data right throughout the day as it arrives and then we're loading it. And in a perfect world, would it be easier for you if you received the push or pushes at the same time or is it actually easier that they trickle in because that allows your server to... I have to ask my IT guys that. They might not like that very much because I'm not sure of the load on the servers of everything arriving all at once. Yeah, uh, so it's actually good for you that it trickles in because it means the it load on the help. server is... We can is... manage it a bit easier. We can schedule yeah. it and manage it. And I'm sure that everybody else is in the same boat in terms of there's quite a lot of data that arrives. As you can imagine from every provider, there is a lot that arrives and a lot to be dealt with and managed. Look, in an ideal world, yes, it would be great to get it all very, very early and be able to then manage it and deal with it and have it available by by opening. You know, like when I'm talking opening, I'm talking 9am or 8, 9am it'd be great but at the moment uh, it's not working it doesn't work that way but yeah that'd be great in an ideal world if we could get all our data in the early hours of the morning and have it all loaded and ready to go by you know say 9am do you receive the data directly from the banks or is there an intermediary in between that manages the funnel no we deal directly with the institution so it's a direct feed But we don't deal with software intermediaries due to our stringent audit requirements, and that's a result of the ASAU 3402 standard. So all of our data feeds are true direct connect, i.e. directly from a financial institution via a secure and encrypted link. And in fact, we apply that due diligence for a purpose, and it's because of ASAU 3402. And, and we just won't deal with other institutions who don't meet our due diligence. So we can't and we won't. Deal with them. We also won't use technologies that don't meet that requirement. No. So the screen scraping, of, mm. uh, scraping of PDF documents um, via emails, mm. we don't support that. We we used to do that. We used to for for a while. We actually had a small number of data feeds where we we experimented with using the the PDF sort of method via emails. We we abandoned that because we were concerned that email is not encrypted. So it's basically sent in most cases sent in the over the internet. There's also no guarantee that the PDF you're receiving did actually come from source. There's no way to validate that you did actually get it from there. Uh, people actually use that in terms of they can send PDFs through and the system will add those, but we have no control over that. So we can't vouch for those as a data feed because someone else could have just made up their own contract note and sent it through and, and the system would have consumed that looking at it as if it had come from, from the source when it has not. So there's no guarantee it hasn't been modified. There's no guarantee 
it received it from who you were supposed to receive it from. Uh, there's no guarantee of privacy either. So if emails are sent over the over the internet, there's no guarantee that those details aren't aren't uh, being uh, intercepted in, in transit. So for those reasons, we don't we don't use those sorts of technologies either. Hmm. Where does ASAE thirty four o two come from? Who who issued it? Uh, so it's an Australian audit standard. So it's basically around assurances around that a process has been followed. And it's the appropriate standard that is used wherever you have a provider who wants you, you want to be able to rely. If an auditor wants to rely on the data that's been provided, then they need to know that the organisation who did the work, in this case class, had the appropriate processes in place. So uh, data feeds are complicated. So on any given day, not all of the data data feeds will arrive when they should arrive. Sometimes when the files arrive, the files may not be complete or may have other issues with them. And so we have a, a whole process around making sure that those data feeds managed effectively, that then they are received when they should be received. If they're not, that we can chase them up and get them resent, that there isn't any duplication, that they haven't been modified. Obviously, things like that encryption from end to end, make sure that no one can modify them in transit. But even when they arrive at class, we need to make sure that they're not modified. We need to make sure that our software is good enough that you can't have an accountant change some of the data and then still have it look like it came from a data feed when it did not. So it's a very important that when the auditor looks at it, that they're clear that it came from the source that it was supposed to have come from. Uh, that doesn't guarantee that it's correct, of course. So the, the ASE doesn't mean that the bank might not send you a bad transaction. It just means that's what they sent us. So there's still a level of work that the auditors still have to do around the quality of the data. But in terms of saying that's what we received from the bank or that's what we received from the broker, that's what that that's what the ASAE 3402 allows us to vouch for. And that allows the auditors then to rely on that. It's not good enough for us to just say to the auditor, trust us, we're doing a good job. That's just, it's just, it doesn't work that way. Auditors are, are professionally skeptical of those sorts of claims. Does class get audited? You know, does class yes. get, oh, okay. Yes, yeah, so the ASA 3402, the audit, we, we engage Deloitte to do that audit. Oh, okay. So Deloitte reviews your data fees, your processes, etc., and then vouches that you have mm. complied with, with this standard. Yeah. So if you read the, so we get a certificate from them. If you read that certificate, it tells you exactly what that, um, what they are assuring. And essentially it's, a, it's that assurance around that the process that we have followed means that if we tell you that that data came from source, you can rely on that to, you know, to a reasonable level of surety. At the moment, bank feeds don't provide historical data. Mm. Is it that the banks just don't want to or this probably comes back to the earlier discussion we had about banks look and it's fair to say that some banks do not all banks don't provide historical data some do and certainly i'll go back to the macquarie case for example where macquarie have been providing historical data since they started data feeds so for many many years and so they were sort of the the leader in that that area and yeah you're right a number of the banks then that followed on afterwards And I'll say it's not because they don't want to. It's more that they're probably not able to and they're probably constrained by their, their legacy systems in that result, you know, getting that data out really. And, and, you know, there may be some reluctance to, to provide the data because of they're not sure of the accuracy of it or the timing or how it's been stored and what they're providing. And there also might be some reluctance about, well, you know, what well, we, we just don't want to share that history. Uh, why should we give it out? And that, that will change over time. Kind of be happy that you get current data, you know. <laughs> Well, as I said, that's changing more and more with the banks, that giving up, if you like, they're almost giving up that ownership and understanding that the clients actually own that data and how important the, the intermediary industry is and the self-managed industry is and the segment and the fact that, you know, like those clients, that their customers uh, really do need that information to be going out and to be, to be shared with their, the guys that are running their day-to-day -day affairs.
Going from bank feeds to general data feeds, how do you receive this information? Do you receive it directly, for example, from the ASX, or does it come through an information broker like Morningstar Data? Yeah, no, we, we receive our exchange data from the ASX. Yeah, directly. definitely from the exchanges directly. Mm. And for managed fund data, we, we work with IRIS on that. And then for international exchanges, you know, they tend to be via APIs. We would prefer to go direct where we can go direct rather than use an intermediary. When you say you, you use an API, you mean an API from an information broker? So for the, no, they're from the international exchanges. I see. I think you just signed up with Shanghai and Shenzhen. Do you receive the data directly from them? Or does that go through another funnel, through an information broker? There are a range of providers that we work with for the international markets because it's a, there are occasions when we engage directly with the exchanges internationally and others where we go through an information provider. It depends on the market and the, the, the rules and the accessibility that they have. How did the data feed with Shanghai and Shenzhen come about? Was that a lot of work or was that reasonably easy to get? And are these the first two internationals markets you are now covering? No, you already had many. So we, we had already added a sort of a dozen or so um, international markets. We started with the list that we did analysis of the data that was held by the SMSFs and we looked to address that as the sort of starting point. We then looked at, and we've been basically just working our way down the top 20, kind of like adding yeah. to... So you started with New the, York and... Yeah, yeah, and New Zealand because they're obviously, although they're not a big player, they're, they're very relevant to Australia. So it's not just a matter of picking the, the biggest market, but yes, the, the Chinese markets was a, a big area that we weren't covering, so it was sort of next logical one to add. And we'll keep building our way down that list and, and adding more exchanges. So. so how far down the list are you? What number are you at from the 20th? Uh, I think it was roughly 18 I see. international exchanges now that we're supporting. Ah, okay. So you're almost through the first list of 20. Yeah, again, we've got some ones like New Zealand that are in there that wouldn't be in the top 20 but yes. which are, yeah, yeah but you're top 20 of, yeah in terms of uh, importance to, to the you. smsf investors hmm. um, yeah we'll, we'll kind of work down that list hmm. and so you you approach the stock market use and then you try to see how the information can be shared yeah it can be quite complicated so even where you are going through uh, an information broker um, it, it, often you still have to have an arrangement with the exchange as well so again it, it varies from market to market exactly how the arrangement works but uh, that's part of what Tom has to, to deal with is working out for different markets what the arrangements are put all the appropriate sort of legal frameworks in place so that we can get that data deal with all the technical ins and outs of how that works and uh, Yeah. So how did Shanghai and Shenzhen go? Was it quite hard or were they already I'll be very honest, open? I actually wasn't on board when those two were being worked on, so Kevin's probably there. <laughs> uh, given that we had already done a large number of them, the team that was involved in that had already good experience. So uh, it is one of those things where the more you do them, the more you kind of get used to the differences and the variances and you kind of go, oh, this is just like that one and this one's just like that one and it kind of gets easier as you go along. So they weren't that hard and we will add, uh, uh, Tom will be looking to work with the team to add a few more over time. So we'll keep building that out. It's a growing area. So it's important that we are able to support what the investors are actually choosing in those um, in that international space. And how do you receive these data feeds? So are most of them also in CSV and a push? Yeah, mostly CSV and a push, yes. Okay. Are data feeds you receive directly from the exchanges or that you receive from the exchanges via an information broker, are they easier than the data feeds regarding the actual transactions? I can imagine that, yes. Yeah, you're right. It's, it is easier because you, the data, you know what you're going to get every day. It's, it's known data. It's known pricing information or exchange information and, and even, you know, the indices. So, yes, it's, it is easier. Once, once you've done it, it's pretty easy to manage every day. And, and also I think the institutions themselves, uh, you know, I won't use the word reliable, but they're probably more uh, dependable in terms of what you're going to get every day. Yeah. at client transaction data, so they also come as a CFV and a push or? Yeah, mostly. So the same as the bank feeds. So uh, most of the providers do push to our SFTP servers and they, they use a CSV format. Yeah.
And what does SFTP stand for? Sorry. I knew you were going to ask that. I'm a nerd. Any acronym you can find, I jump at and feast on it. There was background noise that muffled Kevin's answer. SFTP stands for Secure File Transfer Protocol. And when you think about it, that description already explains quite a bit what SFTP is about. The Secure Transfer of Files. Secure File Transfer Protocol. SFTP. Do these transaction data feeds, they also tend to come pushed once a day, usually between, yes, so, usually uh, overnight? That's right, yes. So they come in overnight as uh, for close of business the previous day. So we're getting them every day and loading them throughout the day. And is security around those data feeds a bigger ball game than regarding the uh, exchange data feeds? Because the exchange data feeds are basically public information anyway. It's the same. It's no less. I mean, the security around the data is the same. So we'll be talking about the encryption before for the bank fees, it's the same for client transaction data. So the encryption and the security works the same, the authorization models are the same. Going back to the general exchange data feeds that you receive from ASX or Shanghai and Shenzhen, even those are encrypted? Yeah. yeah. Oh, okay. I'm surprised I didn't expect that because it's basically public information. That's not the issue. The issue is Mm. that you are talking about information which has to be right. And so what you want to make sure is Mm. that you are dealing with the party that you're supposed to be dealing with, that the data is not corrupted, that the data can't be manipulated. And so all of the processes that we have in place and the expectations about security, obviously one of the differences with market data is you don't have the same privacy concern. But security is still important. If we get the wrong prices, then that is a serious problem. So we want to make sure that that data is correct, that it has come from source, that it hasn't been manipulated and so forth. Oh, okay. Yeah, yeah. So that's a really important point. The encryption and the security is really to stop anybody else intercepting that data in between you and the provider and, and being able to manipulate it or change it or do anything with it. That's right. When a client invests directly on an investment platform, for example, Comsec, then you just have one feed from the investment platform to class for that particular client. Yes, yeah, so it can be one-to-one, but it can also be um, many. So a data file from a provider might include many accounts. So it's not necessarily that we get a single file for every single account. We might get a file from a provider that has many accounts within it. Let's say you have 10,000 funds who have invested on, on the Comsec platform then you probably receive one file that covers all those 10,000 funds or investments. Absolutely, yeah. But you wouldn't receive, or maybe you do, you wouldn't receive the data for other ComSec clients who are on class but haven't given authority or haven't requested a data feed? I know I p- asked this question in the most complicated way, but no, no, do you understand? No, it makes perfect sense. And in fact, yeah, we spoke about this, but it does go back a little bit to the feed provider's authority process and the way that they authorise. So, for an example, if they've got an advisor who has many, many accounts linked to them, uh, that, that advisor could provide an authority across all of their accounts and then that could be then sent out or that that authority would then enable the data for all of those accounts to come out in one file. So yes, there is definitely the possibility that the provider could send data on all the accounts linked to the advisor. The authority model is actually um, based on what they can provide and the relationship in terms of the security of the data is around the relationship between class and the authorizer. So Mm. if an advisor or authorised as class to have that data. They're aware that we're having access to that data. But what we also then undertake is that that data would only be provided to the accountants that, or for the accounts, to the accountants that they should have access to. So we have an obligation essentially as a custodian of that data that where it is more accounts than a particular accountant should have access to, that they don't have access to that unless the accountant has the appropriate authority. So there's a a difference there between the relationship that class has with the authoriser and the relationship that class has with the software users. So we don't get data that class hasn't been authorised to receive, but that doesn't mean that we would give that data to just any accountant. We, we, We certainly wouldn't just go, oh, we've got the data, random accountant walks up off the street, we'll give 
give them that data. So there, there are, it's more complicated than that in terms of the checks and balances that are in place to make sure that a particular accountant only gets access to the accounts that they should have access to. Can I use an example? So let's say there are three funds on class A, B and C. A and B have given authority to receive a data feed, C hasn't. Mm -hmm. If now all these three funds had invested directly on ComSec, ComSec without an advisor but just directly invested on ComSec, then ComSec would only send you the data for fund A and B but not for C, is that correct? correct? We, would never, we would never get the data for no. C regardless of whether they had an advisor or not. We would only ever get that data if it, if it was authorised mm. by an appropriate person and that could either be the account holder or it could be the advisor. If the advisor is an arm's length advisor who didn't set up the account and wasn't involved in the decision to open an account, they generally won't have authority at all. So it's only in the case where the advisor already has access to that data. And what that means is they can, for the accounts that they have that access, they can authorise that data to be fed into, into class. And that's the, based on that existing authority that they have. So you, you can't, if you go to an advisor and you, you, you have a ComSec account, they don't all of a sudden get access automatically to that. There's a process where they get authorised, and if they're not authorised, they don't have access. So they can't authorise for account C if account C they don't already have access to. Some of the providers only support advisor-level authorities, some only support account holder authorities, and some support a mixture of the two. And typically we would only get it authorised at one level or another. So if you have an accounting firm who has an in-house advisor, it'd be very common for them to just authorise all of their accounts so that they come into class and then they, they obviously are administering those funds as well. So it makes sense in that case for them to authorise all of those accounts. In a case where you have an advisor and uh, an accountant is looking after maybe one or two accounts for that advisor, that advisor will not authorise that data generally as a block. That's good. It's the data feed to the ATO, a completely different ball game to the data feed you've received it, it from is, the... Yeah, it's a completely different issue. The issue with reporting data to the regulator, in this case, because <coughs> it's... Um, in the, the T-bar is information that is... It, it, People have to keep in mind that the ATO is both the regulator and the tax collector. And so in the case of the annual return, um, the reason it's not just called a tax return is because it's a combination of reporting information that you need to give to the regulator to do their job as a regulator. And it's obviously got the tax information in it that is your tax return, which they use to work out what the tax liability or refund might be, at least until Bill Shorten gets to it. But at this point, the T-bar is, is really about the, the regulator collecting information so that they can monitor how people are going against the, against the transfer balance account. And what that means is that the tax agent typically is going to assist the fund. I mean, obviously the funds can lodge these things themselves if they want to, but typically it's going to be the tax agent. They will use, the, in the case of T-Bar, the tax portal, and they're able to uh, do those individually or basically load them up in bulk, uh, which they'll typically do on a quarterly basis. Hmm. So T-Bar, does that fall into your area... Tom? No, so you are in charge of the incoming data feeds. That's correct. Whereas the outgoing data feeds, if you... You well, T-Bar uh, that way? Well, unfortunately, T-Bar at the moment is not even a data feed because we actually have to generate a file which has to then be taken and uploaded through the tax agent portal. So right at this point, we don't have uh, direct connectivity through to the ATO. Uh, they haven't built that yet. So, oh, I see. I didn't um, know that. Yeah. So that's, that's the state of play. Um, I think, unfortunately, for the ATO that they haven't had time to get the systems ready. Obviously, the, the legislation came through the super reform sort of came through and I think to some degree the, the ATO has responded as quickly as they can but what that means at the moment is we have to generate a file which is downloaded out of class and then uploaded into the tax agent portal using a thing called the bulk data exchange as part of the portal and lodged it that way. So it's not even a direct data feed from that sense. I see but this upload of the form yep. through the bulk data exchange yep. that happens in the back end of class? No, no it has to be done 
done manually. It has been done by the tax agent. So oh, unfortunately, I I didn't yeah, that is it. the that's the state of play at the moment. Oh, we really? haven't we haven't oh. quite got there. So we're obviously in discussions with the ATO, as the, as the rest of the industry is, saying, guys, can we just have a button so we can just send you the data? At the moment, unfortunately, we have to generate a file which you will download and then upload through the tax agent portal. So the tax agent will need to do that. I didn't realise that. I, I um, you got some fun ahead of you. I yes. <laughs> Yes, I thought T-Bev was going to be just that's an where, outgoing uh, data feed at the press Obviously, of a that's where it needs to get to, is where mm. not only is it going to be a direct connection through to the ATO, as it is with BAS and, and the yeah, annual return, but also that you can report this as often as you like, that you should be able to, for example, if you've done a pension establishment, you should be able to squirt that event off straight away. Why do you have to wait uh, if you don't need to? Or I think the other thing the ATO is saying, in the case of rollovers, for example, particularly if it's a pension um, rollover, that because there's a timing difference between what the APRA funds do and the SMSFs are obliged to do, that their recommendation is you do that as soon as it happens. So, again, it would be great if um, we will build this into class when it's available to say, oh, okay, we, we can send that information off to the ATO to say that there's been a rollover in or a rollover out of a, a pension account as it occurs rather than waiting uh, until later. Because, yeah, because otherwise what will happen is you will have the APRA funds reporting that you've established a pension essentially in the APRA regime and they'll still think you've got the self-managed super fund pension, assuming it went that way, and and it will look like you that they'll be double counting and so you might get a notification saying you're over your cap when in fact you're not. It's just a timing issue with the reporting because the APRA funds are reporting that monthly as opposed to the quarterly or annual reporting that the self-managed super fund might be doing. Where do you see... Integration going? Is it integration with the CIM like Salesforce or is it integration with a document storage system or where do you think is the most likely point of attack regarding integration or, or auditor, auditing software? I think it's all of those things. I mean the great advantage of cloud-based software and, and you know, we talked about this earlier in terms of the fact that it's really the best way to connect things together and so whether that's data feeds coming in or whether that's various service providers being able to plug into class and get the data that they need to do the job they need to do and do it more effectively, as we've seen with actuarial certificates. We have auditors who are doing that today where they're plugged in and getting data out of class straight into their audit-based systems to then do the audits. And there's a range of um, service providers from robo-advice providers through to all sorts of uh, financial planning tools and practice management tools where having access to that data is important to the practice to get done the things they need to do for the services they're providing through to the client. So for us, it's about having, uh, we have uh, 76 different partners at the moment and those partners are doing a range of services from insurance through to, as I said, actuarial certificates and so forth. So it's really about what services do the practices need? What do you guys need um, as accounting practices? And if that means plugging into Salesforce because you've all switched from using MYOB to Salesforce as your CRM, then then great. But I think at the moment, you know, most accounting practices are going to be about plugging into the practice management solution that they are using and where that's appropriate, plugging into document management systems if that's appropriate, plugging into audit tools that they're using. If they're providing advice, plugging into the planning tools that they're providing. If the investors are starting to use tools like robo-advice tools or use other fintech solutions for, for whatever purposes like benchmarking their self-managed super funds or, you know, range of services that you can imagine that uh, various people are, are working on, uh, it's really just about making sure we can enable those because most of those solutions need data to work. They need data to make things happen and uh, whether that's making a recommendation around insurance or whether it's making a recommendation around investment portfolios or whether it's remodeling your, your portfolio, whatever those service providers are doing, the ability to have an API to plug in integration is, you know, is a key driver going forward. I think to add to that as well, and you know, the, the realization that we're living in a digital age now, and we've seen the rapid growth of fintechs and robo advisors, for example, over the last few years, and they're driving a need for more efficient and automated ways to connect. 
and and certainly you'll see things like the establishment of portfolios, transacting, single sign-on, you know, real-time information and data that they need and they're looking for. They're the sort of things that are driving the growth and I think is, is going to drive this really significant role of information exchange going forward and connectivity. You know, what it does do, though, is heighten the sense of security and privacy and how important that is and we've seen the recent events with facebook for example you know and that's not trivial stuff that's massive and and what it does is it 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 has raised that awareness and heightened that awareness of how important it is to protect that data while it might be easy you might want to make it easy to share under certain authorization protocols it's still so much more important to secure it and protect the privacy of it so you've got to make sure that who you're sharing it with yeah. is a trusted institution or a trusted entity that, or that you're going to partner with. Yeah, yeah. we have an obligation to make sure that we do due diligence on those people that are connecting to the APIs, that we know what they're doing with that data. And that you know, there's been a lot of criticism around the Facebook issue in terms of the lot of data was siphoned out of Facebook and no alarms went off. You know, so it's those sorts of things where I think people expect you to have those solutions in place where you have detection systems that go, hang on a second, looks like someone's scraping a lot more data than they should be entitled to or they just can't get to that data because your APIs are designed in a way they can only get to the data that you as either the investor or as the accountant or the advisor who plugged in those solutions have approved them to, to use that data. So it's a complicated area and I think it's an area where you'll see the technology evolving quickly over the next uh, few years in terms of making sure that mm. you're yeah, great to be able to share data but really need to make sure that it's being used effectively, that, that it's being used uh, appropriately for the purpose that it was granted for. And so you see the whole area of integration in terms of class opening up to APIs, letting other people plug, letting other software plug in and provide additional solutions and not so much as class building add-ons that are then part of the um, part of the solution? Our, our strategy um, around what we do in that partner space is very broad. We're at a time in the industry where there's a lot of innovation um, and there's a lot of new ideas about what you could uh, do and where appropriate we will partner, where appropriate we will build out capability, where appropriate we may even acquire It's been interesting watching what Zero has done in this space in terms of initially just saying, well, we we, uh, we provide the APIs, we, we provide the core, but we don't do various other things like payroll or uh, work papers and so forth. And then over time, they've acquired some of those partners that made sense for them to fold into the core. So that's always something we look at as from a business strategy, what's appropriate for us to be doing? Where does it make sense for us to build out and add on to what we're doing? Where Where does it make sense to partner? Where does it make sense to just improve the APIs and the integration? AI. I know it's very cool to talk about AI. Do you see it coming very soon or do you see it still far away? And where do you see it coming in? For example, can you see it in allocation rules to pick uh, in look, first? I think, I think it's, a, it's an interesting area. The, the interesting thing about artificial intelligence and machine learning from a technology point of view is that it has come on leaps and bounds in the last five, ten years. And those improvements have allowed AI systems... I mean, the, the big change has been that they've been now very good at spotting patterns. And so the sorts of things where and interpreting what in the past people would have said was difficult for computers to interpret and to spot patterns in that in that data. So things like analysing a lot of data and then saying something here is, is occurring, uh, they can do. And I think the favourite example people like to use is this sort of cash coding allocation type um, thing. The interesting thing about that, that's actually not a particularly hard problem if you have good data. So I think if you were in a situation where we didn't have good quality data coming in, using AI to solve a problem there kind of makes sense because it can kind of make make something out of what's there. But for us, with the new payments platform and open banking and with even just the existing data feeds that we have, we get such a a rich set of metadata about the transaction. When we get a broker feed, we get the balance, we get the chess adjustment, we get the code that relates to the chess adjustment. We're able to match that up with the market data, which we have all the information about the amount, the reinvestment price and uh, the date that that occurred and so forth. So 
we're able to take all of that metadata and look at a cash transaction and go, well, we know what's going on there. And with systems like Superstream, where you receive that metadata about what that payment was, and it tells you specifically, yes, that was this type of contribution for that member, you don't need AI when you have metadata. So I think the first thing is, yeah, it's nice to think of that as a nice example of where you could use AI, but I think the more likely area that you will see AI used in this sort of area is around that continuous compliance. To be able to say, here's here's an example of uh, 100 different self-managed super funds. These three here had some sort of audit issue. Can you tell me if any of the others actually have audit issues? That's where I think there's some, I think in that area of compliance, um, being able to flag to the administrator that, hey, maybe there's something with this fund you should have a look at before it becomes a big problem. I think that's the interesting areas where you might see AI and machine learning being used. But I think in terms of transaction coding, our users today are already getting very, very high match rates on on the cash transactions that we're getting because if you look at what most transactions are that you're seeing, most of those will be related to the investment portfolio. And if you've got rich data feeds from platforms, from uh, brokers, from the market data, then you should be able to match off most of that without having to have a computer guess for you, which is essentially what the AI is is doing. Hmm. But isn't the auto-match button already AI to some extent? Well, I think that's what people like to think. When you look at what the AI technologies are, they are not just simply based on pattern matching. Pattern matching is something that computers have always been able to do where it is match this narrative to this narrative or ignore this part of it but otherwise match it. So, you know, having wildcards. I mean, doing a you know search for a file name, doing a match for a narrative within a, a bunch of transactions is not AI. The technologies that you're talking about for machine learning do a lot more than just simple matching. They're actually looking for complicated patterns of data within what are quite large data sets. And so, again, a more a more appropriate example, I think, in the case of self-managed super funds, where if you could say, as I said, if you've got 100 self-managed super funds and if the AI can tell you which of those funds look like maybe they have an issue with non, non-arms length uh, investment or look like maybe they've got some issue with some other compliance issue. That's the kind of thing where I think would be interesting, where it's more more complicated, more difficult in terms of the patterns that you need to spot. I think they're the kind of areas where you could you could look to see AI being applied. Welcome back. It will be interesting to see how artificial intelligence will change accounting software. In the next episode, episode 42, Patrick Huang of Argo Lawyers will talk about the legal issues around buying and selling a business. Until then, thank you for listening. Bye for now and see you in the next episode.